Now, with a view to the blessing of God, let's uh, turn to that uh, last passage we read in John and chapter 2. And uh, reading again at verse 11, where we read that this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. I'm sure uh, most of you will remember some weeks ago we saw how Christ um, gathered together his first disciples by the banks of the Jordan where John the Baptist was baptizing. And you'll remember that we looked particularly closely at how he called Nathaniel to be one of his first disciples. And he gave a particular promise to Nathaniel, although he widened it out to the rest of the apostles too. And you find it in the last verse of chapter 1. He told Nathaniel that if he would follow him, most assuredly I say to you, hereafter or from now on, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. And just to summarize the meaning of that, Nathaniel is told that as he follows the Lord, he will have ever-growing insights into the wonder of the Lord's person as a God-man and the wonder of his works, the one who unites sinners on earth to the God in heaven. That, in essence, is what he promises him. Stay with me and you will see my glory, who I am, and my glory in what I do. And here, three days later, he begins to make good on that promise by performing in Nathaniel's sight and in the sight of all the disciples the first miracle that he performs. And we're told that this first miracle in verse 11 manifested his glory. This beginning of signs Jesus did and manifested his glory with the results that his disciples believed in him or their faith was strengthened and confirmed. They believed in him, in other words, all the more because of what they just saw the Lord doing. Now this miracle of turning water into wine is called by John a sign. Now John, John's um, pre- preferred word for a miracle is a sign. There are three words that um, convey the idea of miracle in the New Testament. Miracle itself, sign, and wonder. These three things are essentially the same thing, although they convey a slightly different emphasis. Miracle, sign, and wonder. John uses the term sign, and he uses it all the time. Now, we all know what a sign is for. A sign signposts something. It points to something else. And Jesus' signs are pointing to something. And what they are pointing to, very simply, is again who he is. His identity as the Son of God, God's Messiah, and the only saviour of sinners. And just as an aside, it's interesting to note that there are 
seven signs altogether in John's Gospel. He only records seven of Jesus' signs. Now I'm sure you know by now that seven has a particular symbolic significance in the Bible. Um, It's connected to the word Sabbath and seven days. It means completion, fullness. So these seven signs that John gives are sufficient. They give a complete and full picture to persuade us that the Jesus to whom they point is none other than the Christ of God, the Son of God himself. And again, in that connection, it's interesting how John closes his Gospel, or near the close anyway. He seems to put down his pen and then almost pick it up again. But when he puts it down the first time, John tells us, now listen carefully to this, Truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these signs are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now, you could ask for a sign from God Maybe you have asked for a sign from God. Maybe God has given you a sign and you choose to reject it and want another. But the fact of the matter is that these signs which Jesus did are recorded and written, John says, so that in reading them you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And my prayer for you and my desire for you tonight is that in reading even one of them, you may be compelled to acknowledge yourself that this is indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God, the one to whom we must give account and the only one who can indeed save our souls. So it's a sign written to produce faith. Now I want to look at it with you and we'll just look at four things. First of all, the setting in which this sign occurs. Second, Briefly, the sign itself. What is it? Third, the significance of the sign. What is it that it's really pointing to? And last of all, the response to the sign. So, first of all, the setting. (coughs) Now, in a way, that's straightforward enough. Christ and the disciples, the first group of disciples that he's just gathered... They travel north from the banks of the Jordan into Galilee for the first time. And they arrive in the small village of Cana, which is not far from the main town of Capernaum, not far too from Nazareth. And we find them at a wedding. Now, Christ appears to be there because of a family connection. We know that because his mother, Mary, is there. The disciples are invited, even though they're not known to the family, obviously, because apart from Nathaniel, the rest have just been brought with Christ. Nathaniel has a connection because he's from Cana. But it was just courtesy, the kind of courtesy you find, uh, I hope still in many of our own communities, where people turn up and they are simply invited to come in. And as I say, Nathaniel belongs to the village anyway. Now, these wedding feasts are common enough, always have been everywhere. Sometimes, believe it or not, they could last for something like a week in duration. Now, that's not because the same people feasted for a week. Some people get strange ideas from these things, uh, that people were just sitting having wine or something for a whole week. That's not how these things function. The reason they were a week long is because many people didn't find it easy to attend. Some people came from a distance, so you wouldn't have the same guests all the time. But there would be an opportunity for around about a week uh, to meet with the family and to share in their rejoicing and in their gladness. Now, it was vital in that culture to have enough food and wine. 
we know ourselves, even in our own cultures, that it can be sometimes a bit embarrassing if somebody calls round and you don't have something. Um, even more so then, and amongst those people, it was just not the thing to do to run out of wine or to run out of food. But of course they did. And here's where the situation begins to become interesting. Because Mary, the Lord's mother, instinctively turns to Christ. Now, in a way that's to be commended. Whatever our need, whatever it is we have shortage of, whether spiritual or temporal, our first port of call is Christ. And there's something to be commended in that. She comes to her son and she says, they have no wine. That's it. They have no wine. But Christ's response to that raises more questions than answers on the face of it anyway. And I'm saying that because it sounds to us now far be it from being true but it sounds to us as though in what Christ says he is being somehow disrespectful to his mother or offhand or somehow disparaging her. Now I'm saying far be that from us because we know that that is not so. That can't be so. It was his finger long ago, before he was properly incarnate, it was his finger that wrote the Ten Commandments in the tablets of stone which Moses took down from the mountain. It was his voice that thundered from the mountain to honour your father and your mother. And the one who wrote that with his finger in stone and who uttered it from the top of Mount Sinai is hardly going to be the man who is going to disrespect or disregard his own mother in the days of his flesh. So that put aside and whenever you come across the thought you may well mark it down as a blasphemy. But there are two things we should note. First of all, his use of the word woman in verse 4 woman he said what does your concern have to do with me now if I was to say something like that or or if another man was to say something like that today it would sound disparaging alright because it would sound as though I was addressing you as a woman or identifying you as a woman and because of that I was saying what I was saying. In other words, I was somehow putting you down. But in the language Christ was using, it doesn't convey that idea at all. Let me make a simple comparison. If I was to use the word man, for example, if I said, As Peter used it by the fireside, you'll remember when they asked him, do you know this man? And he said, man, I don't know where he's from. Sometimes in Gaelic they used to say, man, simple. There's no disparaging, no disrespect, it was just man. This is the case. Well, that's the way it's used here. Woman is just a simple term of address. Nothing disparaging, nothing disrespectful. It's interesting it's not mother. I'll come to that in a second. He doesn't say mother. But when he says woman, no disparagement, no disrespect. The second thing is, well, just what he says to her. What does your concern have to do with me? In other words, why are you coming to me with this that's a good question there were other people looking after the feasts there was a master of the ceremonies there were servants who were in charge of the food and the drink why is it that she goes to Christ well that's the question he asks her You know, very often when we do go to Christ without concerns, sometimes the question the Lord has is, why? What what is it that you really want? 
we, we can sometimes say to people that we want Christ and we want to be a Christian, for example. And then when you say, why do you want to be a Christian? They're not really sure. I think I mentioned that a couple of weeks ago in connection with the, the blind man outside Jericho. He came to Christ asking the Lord to help him. And Christ said, what is it that you want me to do? He asked a blind man that question. Because he wants to hear it articulated. And, and the Lord wants us to articulate what we want. That's fair enough. But he sometimes asks us, what is it that you want and why do you want it? And the Lord here says, what does your concern, lack of wine, have to do with me? Do you think it's my duty to provide it? Or do you expect me to provide it? What, what do you want me to do? Now it's a good question because Mary undoubtedly has her own expectations. She carried this God-man in her own womb. She suckled him on her breast, raised him on her knee. She had a promise from the beginning that the child conceived in her was none other than the Son of God, conceived without paternity by the power of the Holy Spirit overshadowing her. She knew all that. And as she watched him and observed him, as the oldest son in her own household, she was waiting for the manifestation of his identity and the manifestation of his glory. Waiting for the day when he would cease somehow just to be a man as a carpenter in the village of Nazareth and shown to be the one she knew him to be, the Son of God, the Messiah, the King of Israel, as Nathaniel himself had said. Now, it's that expectation that Christ is checking, or he's modifying it. He's urging her to look at it and to think about it. It's in that connection, I think, that he calls her woman and not mother. In other words, he's saying to her, you're coming to me not with a real understanding of what it is that I must do, but with your expectation of what I will do and when I should do it. It's as though you're coming to me as my mother rather than as a humble believer who has to cast herself at my feet and wait for my will and for my initiative and for my directive, not responding to your assessment of the need, or as I mentioned in the morning, your timetable for the revelation of my glory. And instead of being the one who bore me and suckled me, you must become simply someone who hears the word of God, who keeps it, a humble servant waiting for my will. So it's not for her to be trying to control these operations. After all, as Jesus says to her, my time has not yet come, or my hour has not yet come. Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. I told you when I was 12 years of age at the temple, and I told Joseph that I must be about my father's business. And you heard me say that as I was transitioning from a boy to a man. Now, he says, I want you to remember that. The glory you are looking for from me is far in the future. Before then, there are things to be suffered. What's more, if she was to remember Simeon's own words to herself, a sword would have to pierce her own soul too before she saw that glory in all its fullness. But the degree to which my glory is manifested and the time at which I manifest it is entirely my prerogative. Leave me to do my work in my way and in my time. Now, 
I more or less hinted at that in the morning too, that we still have a tendency ourselves, not altogether unlike this, to expect Christ to respond in the way that we want him to. To answer our prayer again in our time and in our way. But the Lord checks that. And he has different ways of checking it. We need to learn and relearn that he is the master and we are the servants. The appointment book is in his hands and he governs the timetable. Remember that. Always remember it. And if we don't, friends, it just leads to disappointments. Very often when, when you expect Christ to do a certain thing at a certain time and it doesn't happen, well, there's disappointment. In fact, I remember reading a book many years ago now. I haven't seen it. It was called Exit Conversations. To be honest, I, I wouldn't really recommend it because it's quite a, a sad read and a depressing read in many ways. But it, it was... Speaking about people who had left the faith, why had they exited the church? Why had they ceased to believe? And by far the highest um, number of reasons was because God hadn't answered their prayers. And that's the importance of this thing. Watch what we mean when we ask the Lord to do something. We really have to be careful when we are asking the Lord to do something that we are not trying to fit him into our expectations rather than us falling in line with his. That's really for another time but that belongs to what Mary is doing. She's not taking her place. Her place is not his mother but at his footstool as a disciple. So that's the context here because Christ goes Outside to the water pots. Although, before he goes out, uh, you'll notice that Mary just turns to the servants and she says, Whatever he says to you, do it. In other words, she gets the sense that he's going to do something all right. He's not going to do it because she asked it, but he's going to do it anyway. And she senses that. She is a spiritual woman. She senses it and she simply says to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. I've often thought that that's a, a pretty good motto for life. Really. People sometimes put uh, mottos on, on their arms, tattooed, or they, they wear them on a T-shirt or something like that. And if Lots of these things, of course, can be corny and cheesy and so on, but if you are going to put something onto your T-shirt or something, whatever he says to you, do it. Just carry it around with you. The Lord himself spoke about writing something on your forehead and writing something on your hand. Whatever he says to you, do it. It's a motto for life. Whatever he says to you, do it. That's simply all she said to the servants. The Lord goes outside to the water pots and the servants follow him. It's interesting how they listen to her. Some people have wondered if Mary herself had some kind of role at the wedding. We don't know. In any case... They listened to her. I'm sure she was a highly respected woman anyway. But they listened to her and went out with her. Second, the sign. Outside, there are six water pots. They all contain between 30, sorry, 20 and 30 gallons of water, which is 600 or so litres. In other words around about six full baths of water. It's an awful lot of water. The Lord simply asks the servants to fill all these water pots to the brim with water. And then he asks them to draw out of the water pots into other vessels of some kind and to take what they've drawn out to the master of the feast. And at some point between the water pots and the table, that water is transformed into wine. Or at least I think it is at some point between the water pots and the table because the text interestingly refers in verse 9 
to the servants who had drawn out the water. Now, I don't want to push this too far, but if the water had changed into wine in the water pots, it would have been wine they had drawn out. But the text seems to be saying that they drew out water. And so it was at some point between the water pot and the, wa- and the table that the water turned into wine. That is the sign that the Lord performed. So third, what is the significance? If the sign is pointing, if this is the first sign, and it is the first sign, there are spurious Gospels that have been in circulation from long, long ago which portray Christ as performing miracles when he was a child. Christ performed no miracle as a child. That was not his calling. The only miracles he performed were connected to his ministry, illustrating his message, and had nothing to do with self-aggrandizement or anything of that kind, or misusing power or anything of that kind. Carefully controlled signs that the Father had given him to do. And this is the first of them. And if it's the first sign, what is it signifying? Well, friends, it's signifying two things. It's showing the glory of Christ in his person and again in his work. The two things that he had said to Nathaniel that he would see. Stay with me, believe in me, trust in me, and you'll see the glory of my person and the glory of my work. First of all, they see the glory of his person. And they see that in the way that he performs this miracle and the way in which he pretty much performs every miracle with some exceptions. That is simply by his power without a rod and in this case even without a word. (laughs) When others perform miracles they have some kind of symbol of authority. Elijah and Elisha and Moses with their rods Or if they weren't even to use a rod, they were explicitly to call upon the name of the Lord. Making plain to the people that the power that was exercised wasn't their own. The authority to which they were appealing was not their own authority. It was in the name of God and by the power of God that they were performing whatever miracle they had to perform. Moses and his rod. The rod was the symbol that There's no power or glory to Moses in what is happening. It's glory and power to God. But there's none of that with the Savior. If he's a prophet, he's a different kind of prophet. If he's a wonder worker, a miracle worker, one who does signs, then he's different in the miracles and wonders and signs that he does. Because the authority to perform miracles is his own the power may indeed be the Holy Spirit's power because that belongs to his state of humiliation but the authority is his own it's not in anyone else's name it's in his own name that he cast out demons it's in his own name that he turned water into wine because he is the son of God in this world and That's who they were to recognize him to be. It's an interesting thing, as we noticed before, that Nathaniel confessed him to be that. If you just go back for a second to the previous chapter and verse 49, when uh, Nathaniel discovered that Jesus had seen him underneath the fig tree before he was anywhere near him, Nathanael answered in verse 49 and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And that is exactly what the rest of the disciples are seeing in front of their very eyes. And when it says in our text here, chapter 2, verse 11, that he manifested his glory, that's the glory that they saw. 
the glory as of the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. Now it's a sad thing, and it belongs to our sinful condition that we become familiar with truth. In heaven that will not be so. Our sense of wonder in heaven at what God has done and who God is will always remain. But it's one of the unfortunate aspects of sin that we become familiar with things, even the best of things, and we become familiar with holy things. But how can we be familiar with the fact that the one who walked this world and who ministered to us and spoke to us is God manifest in the flesh? That's a glory that we should still feel emanating from the scriptures. And every time the Lord is preached, the glory of the fact that he has come down to us <coughs> in order to seek and to save that which is lost, that is ourselves. That's what the signs signify. It's significant. Signposts. It signposts his identity as the Son of God. The second thing the miracle signified was to do with his work not his person. And to understand that, we need to understand the water and the wine and to contrast them. First of all, the water. Now, sometimes water in the Bible is a symbol of life, quenching our thirst, drinking the water of life. And of course, famously, the Gaelic language has loaned a, world into, a word into English. There aren't many words in English that have been loaned from the Gaelic language. Very, very few. Galore is one. Another is whiskey. Ishkipehe, they call it. Life-giving water. How misnamed a thing it is. Too many people it gives death. But the Lord gives real fresh water that invigorates our body, that strengthens, refreshes and renews. But that's got nothing to do with this. The water here does not function in any way in relation to what we drink. It's got to do with purification. In verse 6, we're told that there were set at the house six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews. In other words, it was there for washing when you became unclean. And as a Jew you could become unclean for loads of reasons that had to do with unclean things and touching unclean things. We read some of these regulations in the book of Leviticus. But why are there six bathfuls of water? Why are there six giant water pots of stone in one person's house? Well, I think it's possibly worth saying that it may be the case that on an occasion like a wedding like this, neighbours might have lent their own. It might be possible that they only had one or two, but others donated water pots and there were six water pots. Just for ample opportunity to be clean. But still, why so much? It's an awful lot. I mean, usually washing just required a little cup just to pour on yourself or something like that. Most of the washings wouldn't be relevant to people who had come to a wedding. Why are they there? Well, two reasons. First, as we saw, the law required cleansing. Wash, wash, cleanse, cleanse, because the book of Leviticus is all about holiness. Without holiness, no man can see the Lord. That's its theme. And there's no doubt that the conscientious Jew was learning week by week that they were unclean and defiled. Yes, it was a heavy yoke. Even though this was God's law, it was difficult to bear. It was kind of difficult to keep on top of these things. But these things were God's way of reminding an infant church of the importance of respecting God's holiness. A lesson that we forget. Perhaps it might be easier for ourselves if we were constantly washing to remember God's holiness. But that's not the way God appoints it under the new covenant. But let that not be a reason for forgetting it. God wants you holy. He wants me holy. 
So these laws were there. But there was a second set of rules and regulations that didn't come from God. They came from the Pharisees who had usurped the leadership and the teaching office in the Church of Christ. And they made a big deal of washings. Washings that they thought were important and which God had never commanded. You may remember on one occasion they confronted the Lord because he hadn't washed his hands before they ate. Now, please remember that that has nothing to do with hygiene. I know that we're familiar with, with washing our hands now before eating. But when the Pharisees confronted Christ about this, it was nothing to do with hygiene. It was to do with the fact that, that they had made a law, a religious law, that you should wash your hands religiously before you ate. The scribes and Pharisees came to Jesus saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? Because they don't wash their hands when they ate bread. The Lord says, Why do you transgress God's commandment by your own traditions? Which is what people do today. Um, People today are making new traditions and they're breaking God's commands in the process. But it's always been done. He says, God commanded, honour your father and your mother. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God, then you don't need to honour your father or mother. And thus, he says, you have made God's commandment void by your tradition. It's complicated the way that it's written here. But in essence, what happened was this that the Pharisees found a creative way of not having to maintain your mother or father in old age. The church needs to hear this because society has a, a new way of treating old people, which is divorcing them from their families and putting them into institutions. Now, sometimes it's impossible for families to care for their elderly, simply because their needs might be complex and may be out with their competence to care. That, that's true. That's fair. I'm not saying that um, simply putting your mother or father to a home is wrong. I'm not saying that at all. But it can be wrong. It can be very wrong. And the disciples, the Pharisees found a way to avoid that uh, obligation because the money that they had which could be used to that effect, they found out a creative way of accounting to dedicate it to the temple which means that they couldn't use it for that purpose, but there was a loophole by which they could use it for another purpose. Because the Pharisees always found a way. They they were good at putting burdens on other people's backs, but they always found a way themselves. A bit like the elites today, you know, it's strange how they, they make rules for people, but have a way of escaping the loopholes themselves. It's always been thus. It's always been thus. But honour your father and a mother and your mother isn't a commandment that lapses when you turn six. It doesn't lapse when you turn twelve. It doesn't lapse when you turn twenty or fifty or sixty. You're still to honour your father and your mother. And even if you cannot provide the particular care that they need, you still honour them by visiting them, remembering them, caring for them. Ensuring that those needs are provided for. God sees when that's done and God sees when it's not done. So the Lord says effectively, you and your traditions, you've made new traditions which are actually making void the law of God. So the Pharisees had all these washings and he, here were the, who knows, maybe this household needed the six giant water pots just to keep up with all that people wanted them to do. So what is the Lord effectively saying? Well he's saying this. First of all, he is doing away with the old covenant laws. Even the water that was necessary, he's putting it to the side. He's got something better in its place. And then again, he's also putting aside the way the Pharisees had for making people holy. 
The way of becoming holy is by doing what God says. That's how we grow in holiness. In other words, when we are converted, we are justified. We are pronounced clean and set apart as holy to God. And then the rest of our life consists in learning what God wants us to do, how he wants us to behave, to respond in certain situations, how he wants us to worship, how he wants us to be in the family, how he wants us to live at work, how he wants us to worship himself in private, in our own closet, to pray and to read, to show forgiveness, kindness, mercy, how to, how to forgive enemies. And all these things aren't just a matter of learning them from a textbook. I think most of us discover that the Christian life is very complex. It takes time to learn how to do things like that and to apply them. And we sometimes rise and fall. And we need forgiveness and renewal and repentance and to be put back on the track again. But being put back on the track means doing what God wants us to do. Not a whole list of rules and regulations devised by people who think that that is how to get to God. It's not how to get to God. Instead of that, Christ just brings us the best wine. When this wine came to the master of the feast, he tasted it and he said, it's the practice at the beginning of the feast to give the best wine. And then when people have got used to its taste, very often wine was diluted in those days anyway, but when people have got used to its taste, they they serve the cheaper and the inferior wine. But he says, "You've, you've kept the best wine. You've kept it to the end. Why was that? Well, it was because the Lord made good wine. Good wine. And six water pots of it. So that they would never go short for the rest of the week. And wine functions here as it always does in the Bible as what gladdens the heart of man. Not for drunkenness, just as a restorative. There's something about wine that quickens and invigorates. And you have a sense that it goes through you immediately. The Bible tells us not to look at it when it's red. It's an interesting expression that because that's God's way of saying that when it starts talking to you saying drink me, drink me, that's when you leave it. But it has its place. And one of these places is as a symbol of what the life of God does for you. It it comes in and it brings joy and gladness, newness of life. Sadly the very thing that sometimes in our foolishness we begin to look to earthly wine for. It's an interesting thing, but um, I remember, and I'm sure I've mentioned this to you, to you before, when I was with you at some point in the past, but I, I, I know a man quite well who's in England, and his brother is enslaved, uh, his son is enslaved to drink. But he said to me one day, we were driving to, to a meeting, and he said to me, why do you think, he says, that spirits are called spirits? And I, to be honest, I, although I like thinking about words a lot, I, I hadn't really thought about that. And he said, I, I was wondering, he says, why are they called spirits? And he said, looking at my son, he said, it just behaves like a spirit. It, it just possesses. Possesses. Because he says, that's who my son is. I, I just feel he's possessed. It's like a spirit has got hold of him. And sad to say, sometimes, you know, we, we can ask wine to do what wine can't do, what wine was never meant to do, what only its abuse would do, when the real thing is the Spirit of the Lord. Which is why Paul says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit of God. And the Lord is saying to these people, I'm sweeping aside all this, and I'm giving you this. If you will embrace me, you will taste and see that God is good. And you will see that the life that I give you is the best life. The best life available and the best life possible. It is life with God. It's the life of God in you. You in him and he in you. And that is why this miracle is such a fitting miracle 
to perform. When Isaiah looked forward to the gospel age, he he said that on this mountain, that's (coughs) Zion, in Jerusalem, a feast will be spread, he says. He's looking forward to Christ in Jerusalem and what Christ is going to do. And this day will be so great that the covering over the earth will be destroyed, this covering of ignorance and darkness. And the veil, he says, the veil of mourning and weeping will be removed. And instead of all that, he says, there's going to be a table spread which is full of a feast of fat things and wine on the lees well refined. Which is just the life that Christ brings you. And uh, the life that he nourishes through his own word. And uh, when when you receive that word, your new life is nourished. Just like with water indeed, or with wine. A fitting first miracle. It's interesting that the first miracle... Um, is changing water to wine and the last miracle is raising the dead Lazarus it seems that everything that, these and everything in between is showing us the glory of the sun and just last of all and very very briefly because I, I don't really need to say much on it, just the response because in verse 11 this first sign Jesus did in Cana manifesting his glory and his disciples believed in him. I don't think that means they believed in him for the first time. Like I said earlier, or at least I hinted at it, it just means that their faith grew. Everything they saw this man do, everything they heard this man say, just confirmed to them their original conception. And of course, as he promised to Nathaniel, this will only go on. And it only goes on with us too. We need to ask the Holy Spirit as we go on in life to show us more of the glory of our Saviour. And he will undoubtedly do that for us. The glory of the one who is the stairway to heaven on whom the angels of God constantly ascend and descend. May the Lord bless these thoughts on his word. Let's stand and pray. Almighty God and Saviour of all his people, uh, we look to you as the giver of strength, the author of life, the one who gives what satisfies in comparison with a world that satisfies not. We pray your blessing upon the scriptures and pray that they would awaken within us good thoughts and that they would awaken to a spirit of gratitude and of prayer for great is the Lord and greatly he is to be praised we bless you for the feast that has been spread out for your people in Christ through his word and pray that our greatest hunger and thirst would be for these spiritual realities and to be Christ-like in life. If we hunger and thirst for that righteousness, then we shall certainly be filled. And Lord, we pray for those who hunger and thirst for other things and whose lives are increasingly empty the more they fill themselves with what does not satisfy. We pray that they would find him who is life indeed. Help us to help them too and to point them to be signposts ourselves towards a Saviour who is mighty to save. Praying in his name for his sake. Amen. <coughs> Our last singing is in Psalm 4. Psalm 4, the last three stanzas of the psalm. (coughs) Oh, who will show us 
any good or who will show us good is what the Hebrew says who will show us good and sad to say the people who are asking that in David's day were people who were looking for um, the blessings of food and drink and a healthy economy and that's what many say but this is what David wants but off thy countenance the light Lord lift on us always upon my heart bestowed by thee more gladness I have found than they even then when corn and wine did most with them abound so he looks at people feasting in their plenty and he doesn't envy them one little bit you know he's got no sense of envy for these people at all I will both lay me down in peace and quiet sleep will take because thou only me to dwell in safety Lord doth make these last three stanzas let's stand and sing them